Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of A2Easy. Sorry for the break in content recently. This year has been a bit harder to get things moving to be honest with you, but you can probably guess why, given the headlines and everyone on the team now works as a doctor. So it's just me, Harry, myself and I this time around, my apologies, and today I will be talking to myself about abdo x-rays. Also, for everyone who's keen to point it out, it should be called a radiograph. That's great. Gold star for you. Anyway, why am I doing this? Well, the real reason is I have an episode related to this in the works, so I think it pairs kind of nicely. The other reason is abdo x-rays, while still done in clinical practice, aren't performed that often anymore. CT is more readily available than it used to be anyway, and can tell you a lot more about what's going on in the patient's abdomen than an x-ray can. That being said, medical education often takes some time to update itself when the clinical world moves on, so medical students are still expected to know how to broadly interpret them despite the fact that you will order them a lot less commonly than CTs. I suppose I should also make the obvious statement that I am not a radiologist, so please bear that in mind. What I can say instead is probably the best resource for students I have found for radiology is run by a radiologist, oddly enough, so you know the scan findings are actually correct. It's a website called radiologymasterclass.co.uk. The founder is actually an imperial alum. Anyway, I like that website because it highlights the pathology on the scan rather than just assuming you will notice everything written next to it and identify it with 100% accuracy. So I'll put a link in the description, which does load on your phone, so you're welcome to pull it out and see what I mean for yourselves whilst I'm going along. So remember, like presenting an ECG or a chest x-ray, you need to get the basic things right about an abdo x-ray to cover your bases. That's patient details, date of the scan, and tell me you know it's an abdo x-ray. If it says supine or erect on the film, that's also helpful to know, which I will mention a bit more about later. In terms of exposure, you really want to see the superior and inferior borders of the peritoneal cavity, which are the diaphragm and the pelvis. For this episode, I'm really just going to focus on bowel pathology, but remember the abdomen and the pelvis have lots of other things going on. So to that end, Geeky Medics has a page on abdo x-ray interpretation, and they mention the BBC approach for bowel, bones and calcification, which is a nice way of approaching things, I think. And there's a link in the description. So the first type of pathology we are going to talk about is bowel obstruction, which you can divide into large bowel obstruction and small bowel obstruction, which means you probably need to be able to identify the large and the small bowel on an abdo film. There are two main things to consider when determining whether a bowel loop is large or small bowel. Firstly, location. When you think back to general anatomy, the small bowel is central and the large bowel sort of like ensnares it around the outside in the periphery. So that's your first way of guessing. Then there is a difference in structure. In short, the large bowel has visible haustra on the film, the small bowel has valvuli coniventes. On a film, these both appear as thin lines in cross-section of the bowel. Haustra do not cross the entire width of the bowel. They just come from each side but don't meet in the middle. That's interrupted. Meanwhile, valvuli coniventes do, uninterrupted. Haustra exists because of the three tenia coli muscles, of course you remember the tenia coli muscles, which span the large bowel. They're often described as suspension cables, which the circular smooth muscle hang onto in order to contract and peristals. The tenia coli are shorter than the actual large bowel, so they cause the bowel wall to fold on itself, forming little segments. The folds are the haustra. It's a bit like the clear plastic cover which goes over a scope in theatre. Anyway, valvuli coniventes are just mucosal folds in the small bowel which are normal for everyone. 
They help increase its surface area just like villi and microvilli. There is therefore a transition between visible valvuli coniventes to haustra as you go from small to large bowel. The extra thing to bear in mind is when differentiating small versus large bowel is the size, or the calibre of the bowel. As you can guess, small bowel has a smaller calibre, large bowel has a larger calibre. The issue with this is because this is only necessarily true on a normal film. It might be worth looking at a normal film at this point, just to look for all these sort of aspects. So let's say you see some bowel loops in the middle of the abdomen and you can see complete, uninterrupted lines going across the lumen. It's small bowel. But it looks quite large, just eyeballing it. How do you know when the bowel is too large, when it's dilated? So the 369 rule is a simplistic way of saying whether a bowel segment is dilated. Small bowel is the smallest, so when that's about 3 centimetres, it's dilated. Regular large bowel is above 6 centimetres, and for the cecum, which is the largest segment of the bowel, it needs to be above 9 centimetres to be considered dilated. So firstly, in an exam setting, you would describe this as dilated bowel. The next thing you would do is look for the distal end of that dilated segment, so track it. Remember, bowel obstruction causes a backup effect. So if that is the cause, there should be a point where the bowel obstruction starts, and from there, dilation occurs backwards up the GI tract. This would be a distinct transition point or a level of obstruction. If you can find one, amazing job, you have a diagnosis of bowel obstruction. If the level is in the large bowel, it's a large bowel obstruction. If it's in the small bowel, it's SBO. On the other hand, if there is no obvious transition point, it might not be true bowel obstruction. It might be a pseudo-obstruction, including a post-operative ileus. The truth is, it's often really hard to tell on an x-ray, which is why we end up doing a CT scan instead, which is a thing I'm probably going to say too many times in this episode. There are a few good examples, though, of large bowel obstruction on that radiology masterclass website. The next point is more for clinical practice rather than image interpretation, by the way, so just bear this in mind. It's the significance of the ileocecal valve in bowel obstruction. Now, when I was in third year, I didn't think I'd heard of the ileocecal valve, so really do not be alarmed but it's, I think it's kind of helpful. It's the junction between the terminal ileum and the cecum. It's a sphincter, and just like others in the GI tract, the esophageal sphincters, or the pyloric sphincter for instance, its job is to keep the GI tract moving in the correct direction, aka stopping the backflow of gut content. When working normally, it's a one-way valve allowing luminal content into the large bowel from the terminal ileum. Now, if you imagine someone with a competent, i.e. working ileocecal valve, develops a large bowel obstruction, the bowel will become dilated from the level of the obstruction and then it backs up to the valve, and then no further because it's a one-way valve. The small bowel would therefore not be dilated. This all sounds fine, right? And until you realise that backed up content has nowhere to go, it can't go forwards and it therefore can't go backwards. It's a bit like a tension pneumothorax which relies on a one-way valve effect. This is called a closed loop obstruction. Over time, Gas-forming bacteria in that bowel segment cause it to become more and more distended. As you can guess, this is bad, as the distended bowel can restrict its own vascular supply, which would prompt necrosis, and this increasing distension increases the eventual risk of perforation. Bringing this back to abdo x-rays, what you can take away from this is with large bowel obstruction, it can be dilated on its own with a competent valve, or it can back up into the small bowel, causing dilation there too, with an incompetent valve. And since we started to mention bowel perforation, I thought I would talk about this next. 
we generally talk about either small, localized perforations or full-blown scary ones. It's difficult to pick up a localized perforation on an abdo x-ray. CT is much better at this. But there are still some signs to be aware of, though, that might suggest a barn door perforation. Firstly, pneumoperitoneum. The important idea here is the GI tract contains air, but the peritoneal cavity normally does not. If the bowel wall has perforated, air will enter into the cavity, and since air is less dense than water, it will rise to the top of the cavity. This means that on an erect chest x-ray or abdo x-ray, you might see air under the diaphragm. Now, normally on a chest x-ray, for example, you will see a gastric bubble, which is generally circular in shape and is, just as the name suggests, air inside the stomach. Normal. Air under the diaphragm is not circular. It's more likely to be flat or concave in shape and will be directly underneath the diaphragm. And when there's enough of it, you might see it under both of the hemidiaphragms. Now let's say you're the FY1 on night cover and you've been asked to chase a post-operative abdo x-ray that one of your seniors wanted for some reason. Okay, this is unlikely to be honest, but you will see where I'm going with this. You have a quick check over the notes and you can see the patient is day two, post-elective procedure, a laparoscopic hemicolectomy. They don't have a stoma and they haven't opened their bowels. You have a quick look at the film and can immediately see some of the anatomy is distorted. You can also see some segments of bowel in the central part of the abdomen with valvuli coniventes, small bowel. The bowel is 3.5 centimeters, according to the measuring tool on your computer. And you can also see some bilateral concave shaped lucent regions underneath the diaphragm, suggestive of pneumoperitoneum. Before you panic, thinking they're having a postoperative small bowel obstruction with a perforation, always remember to interpret the film in the context of the clinical scenario. So firstly, the anatomy is distorted because they've just had their half their colon removed and they aren't opening their bowels and their post-op, which makes an ileus a likely possibility. That is probably what's causing the dilated small bowel. Remember, ileus is a type of pseudo-obstruction rather than a real obstruction. Now, for the air under the diaphragm, you have to think about the operation they've just had. In order to get good views in the abdomen during a procedure, you need the anterior abdominal wall off of the viscera. So, we pump carbon dioxide gas into the abdomen via a port. It's called insufflation. So at the end of the operation, you take the pump away and the CO2 gas floods out of the incision sites and sometimes makes a bit of a fart sound. You don't get all the gas out and some will remain and it will look like air under the diaphragm until it's eventually absorbed, meaning all those findings could be explained by the patient's recent operation. Also for reference, I don't think in an exam, don't worry, you would not be expected to interpret a complex post-op surgical film like this. This is just a scenario I've dreamt up to illustrate a few points. There is another sign of perforation, though, that goes hand in hand with pneumoperitoneum that I think you should know about. It's eponymously named Wrigler's sign, but could also be called double wall sign. In simplified terms, because I am not an expert, it's helpful to remember different things absorb x-rays differently. Bone, for example, absorbs a lot, so it looks opaque on a film. Air just lets the x-rays transmit basically straight through, so it's loosened. We've already said there is no air normally in the abdominal cavity, but it's not like a magic vacuum under pressure. There is peritoneal fluid, and when you have too much of that, we call it ascites. Peritoneal fluid will absorb some x-rays, so will the bowel wall. The air inside the bowel will allow it to pass straight through. Normally, this means you have quite a contrasting colour difference between the bowel wall and the air inside it, so you can see the inner lining of the wall quite clearly. 
On the outside, though, where the fluid and the wall are next to each other, there is less of a contrasting difference, so you can't really see the outside lining very well. So suddenly, if a perforation has happened, and air from the bowel has entered the peritoneal cavity, you'll have air on the inside of the lumen and the surrounding outside of the bowel. That means both areas will have a high contrast between the tissues, which means you can see both parts pretty well. Thus, the phrase double wall sign. It's, it's a subtle sign, okay? So I recommend looking at some examples. Radiology Masterclass has one. Moving on, I'm going to talk about volvulus, which leads to clinical bowel obstruction. I'll explain what a volvulus is properly in an upcoming episode, but it's essentially the bowel twisting on itself. This tends to occur either at the sigmoid colon or less commonly the cecum. Volvulus is a spot diagnosis on chest x-ray or CT. It's a big, distended loop of bowel. And like a balloon dog's ear, it sort of starts in one place, loops back around, and then ends up at that place again. That starting and end place is where the twist is, and that's therefore the, where the blockage is, and it's what we use to define what type of volvulus it is. Therefore, volvulus that starts and ends in the left lower quadrant is probably a sigmoid volvulus, and one that clearly starts in the right lower quadrant is probably a sequel volvulus. But remember, sigmoid volvulus is much more common, so that's generally the safer bet in an exam. In radiological terms, sigmoid volvulus causes coffee bean sign, and sequel volvulus is sometimes described as embryo sign. For the last part of the episode, I'm going to move on to the other main topic of diagnosis on abdofilm, IBD complications. These are all mainly associated with ulcerative colitis because they occur in the colon. The first complication is probably one of the coolest, grandest names in medicine, Toxic Megacolon. Um, a great name for a medical-themed heavy metal band, although one of my favourite things to misspell, Toxic Megacolon. Anyway, um, as the name suggests, Megacolon means a grossly dilated large bowel toxic because the patient is systemically unwell with it. In an exam setting, this would normally have a lead-in describing a patient with poorly controlled IBD. It's not bowel obstruction, because there's no mechanical obstruction, it's just the bowel is heavily inflamed and dilated. Next is thumbprinting, which is another acute sign. It looks like thumbs are projecting from the bowel into the lumen. It's interesting to look at. It's all because of the haustro we mentioned before. The bowel is inflamed, and that includes the haustra, which just causes them to become thickened and look like the thumbs. When you have chronic inflammation as a result of poorly controlled ulcerative colitis, you have remodelling happen, which leads to the loss of the haustra entirely, so the opposite of what I've just described, and that's called lead pipe sign. And those, I think, are the main things that I think you might come across in an OSCE station for abdo x-rays. So, just to recap, I've blathered on about identifying large versus small bowel, bowel obstruction, and the 369 rule. There was a tangent about closed loop obstruction and the ileus sequel valve. Then we covered perforation with pneumoperitoneum and regular sign, whilst briefly mentioning postoperative ileus too. Then there was a sigmoid and sequel volvulus discussion and IBD complications. And I, I think that will do for today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>